invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a series in this glorious chapter, Romans 8. And we come this morning to Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. I'll be reading the beginning in verse 9 through verse 17. This is God's inerrant word. Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word. Abba, Father, we thank you for the privilege to take those words upon our lips, to draw near to you through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and in the power of your Holy Spirit who lives within us, enabling us to pray. Holy Spirit, would you come even now as we study this remarkable passage, Lord, would you bear witness with our spirits, to our spirits, that we, your people, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, are children of God. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I was texting with a friend this past week who has just taken a new job as an assistant pastor after about 10 years as a senior pastor, a solo pastor at a, a smaller church. And, and after a few weeks on the job, he was, he was telling me that he still doesn't really know what he's supposed to be doing. Now, I'm sure the church has given him a written job description, uh, and, and yet it seemed to him uh, that it, it wasn't yet exactly clear how they wanted him to be spending his time. And I wonder if you've ever had that experience in a job uh, that you have worked. Uh, you, you say, well, I'm here, you, you've hired me, but I don't really know what it is you want me to do. Or maybe you've been in a job where you feel that way about someone else, right? You're always around here and you're always in other people's way, but like, what is it that you do around here again? Like, what is your job exactly? And I wonder this morning if you might feel that way about the Holy Spirit. I wonder this morning if you have this general sense of the Spirit's presence in the Bible and maybe in your own life, but what's his job again? What, what, what exactly is his purpose in the Christian life? Perhaps you don't even 
think about the person of the Holy Spirit as a person, right? He's the person that you know the least about among the members of the Trinity. And, and you don't sometimes think of him as a person, but maybe as a force, as this impersonable force that, that, that pervades or influences the way barometric pressure and the electromagnetic field influence everything around us. Maybe you think of his personal pronouns not as him or he, but as it, right? The spirit, it does this. And yet we see in the scriptures, Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, that the spirit can be lied to. You can't lie to a force, to a power, but to a person. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where Paul tells us the spirit can be grieved. He's a person. Or in our text this morning, in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, Paul tells us that the spirit works. He has a job. He has been sent into the Christian's heart by the Father and the Son to accomplish a task, multiple tasks, in fact. And all of the tasks that we see here in this passage have to do with our adoption into the family of God as sons and as daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This morning, I want us to meditate upon the work of the Holy Spirit. What is his job? in our lives? What has he been sent by God, the Father and the Son, to do in us and for us? Well, three things that we see here in this passage. First, the Holy Spirit leads us into holiness. Second, the Holy Spirit enables us to pray with childlike confidence. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit assures us that we are heirs of God. Let's look at the text together. First, the Spirit leads us into holiness. Look with me at verse 14. Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now we have to be careful not to read this verse sort of out of context, in isolation from the passage around it and before it. Right, Paul here is not referring to some general sort of leading that the Spirit does with regard to, say, our vocation or, or what city should we live in or, or what, what uh, person should we marry, right? That's not the leading that he's referring to here in this passage. Rather, he's referring to the same thing that he's just spoken of in verse 13, to the putting to death the deeds of the body. But he's using a different image and a different emphasis here, isn't he? In verse 13, Paul emphasized our activity. We mortify sin by the Spirit. But now in verse 14, he's looking at the, the other side of it. He's emphasizing that the Spirit's activity of leading us, we are passive, we are led. And where does he lead us? Into what does he lead us? Into holiness. Why? Because he is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit directs and governs every believer in Jesus the way that a cowboy, a cowgirl governs and directs and leads a horse. The Spirit strengthens us, Paul is saying, to, to kill the deeds of the flesh moment by moment. He enables us to walk by him, to set our mind on his things, as we've seen in the previous verses. But I want you to see what Paul is doing in this verse. That first little word, for, shows us that what Paul is doing here in verse 14 is giving us the basis for the assurance in verse 13 particularly the, the assurance that if we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. 
it's like those proofs that you did and maybe hated back in geometry class, right? Where you would say, okay, A equals D because A equals B and B equals C and C equals D. Ergo, A equals D. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, those who mortify sin are led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And therefore, right, what we know is true, what Paul leaves unstated but clearly is implied, is that if you're a son of God, your new status guarantees eternal life. You will live. And he'll develop that further here even in this passage. But the point I want you to see now is that this holiness of life, being led by the Spirit, it is evidence of our being the children of God. The ESV doesn't really bring out the original with the, 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 the right force, the same as some other translations. Paul is saying all who are led by the Spirit, these and these only are the sons of God. All of those who belong to the family of God will bear the family resemblance. Just like you can look at my own children and say, yep, those are Cangelosi kids, right? They look like Cangelosis. And you can do that for your children just as easily. Why? Because if they're from a family, born of the same mother and father, they're going to look like that family. They're going to bear the family resemblance in the same way. If you are sons of God and daughters of God, you will be led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, Paul says. We see by the fruits of repentance and obedience, those who bear the family resemblance to our Heavenly Father. Maybe you remember the way that John the Baptizer put it in Luke chapter 3, when those Jews were coming out to him hypocritically, and he said this to them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is saying, John is saying the same thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That, that, That the true children of God will show themselves to be such as they walk just like their father in heaven. Or how does John the Apostle put it? In 1 John, he says, if you know that he is righteous, then you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. No one who is born of God practices sin, that is habitually and unrepentantly, because God's seed abides in him. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. The Holy Spirit leads us, the people of God, into holiness. And that holiness is a mark of our sonship. Are you a child of God this morning? How do you know? Well, the Bible tells us, Paul is telling us, John has told us, Jesus has told us, you know that you are a son of God, a daughter of God, if you are led by the Spirit. That is, if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit's power. If, If instead your life is one continuous resistance and rejection of the leading of God and the Word of God and the will of God, then your Father is not God. 
But as John says, as Jesus says to the Jews in John chapter 8, your father is the devil. Now you may protest and you may deny it even as the Jews in in John chapter 8 denied it. And yet, as Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love Jesus and you would keep his commandments because all of those who are led by the Spirit of God into holiness and obedience, these and these only are the sons of God. This is the Spirit's work, to lead God's children into holiness. But but there's a second thing that we see here that the Spirit does, and it's actually another way to tell that you are a child of God. And it's what I said to the children this morning. Just as children talk to their parents and ask their parents for things, so God's children talk to him. We pray. And that's the second thing the Spirit does. He enables us to pray with childlike confidence. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here, Paul is wanting to to make sure that we heard what he said in verse 14. If the Spirit is leading you, it's not merely that you have been justified, that your sins have been forgiven, and you have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, that his righteousness has been credited to your account. As glorious as justification is, there's even more, Paul, Paul is saying. You who are led by the Spirit, you have been made and declared a son of God, a daughter of God. This privilege of being a child of the King is yours. The the judge has adopted you into his family. The judge has become your father. He has adopted you out of slavery and brought you into his household. And he has made you his child forever. And he has given you his spirit by whom you have access to him, to speak to him, to cry out to him, who is the creator, the ruler of all things. See here in verse 15, we have one of the most beautiful statements of adoption, the doctrine of adoption, the truth of our adoption in the family of God in all the Bible. What does the Bible teach us? It says that when we were still dead and guilty in our sin, when we were the child of Satan, when we were willingly a slave to sin, then if we ever thought rightly about our situation, we were led to fear, rightly. Rightly, we were filled with dread and terror and anxiety, fear of death, fear of All the misery leading up to death, fear of judgment on the last day as an unholy sinner would stand before a holy God. We knew that the law only condemned us. We knew in our heart of hearts that we hadn't done enough, that we could never do enough. We hadn't obeyed perfectly. We never could obey perfectly. And we had no excuse for it. That's what Paul has laid out for us in the early part of this letter. Before we knew the Lord, and if you don't know the Lord this morning, then this is true of you today. You are like Adam and Eve, 
hiding from God, running away from God in the garden after they sinned because you know that God is a righteous judge. Anxiety and fear and dread fill your heart even this morning. And if it doesn't, then it ought to, right? That's the only rational response to a holy God in, in light of your own unholiness. But if you're a Christian this morning, when God through the life and death of Jesus, his son saved you. When he opened your eyes to see that Jesus had perfectly fulfilled the law and had suffered punishment in the place of sinners, then what did God do? He turned a slave into a child. He turned a slave of sin into a child of God. And he gave you his spirit. He gave you his spirit, not as a spirit of slavery, Paul is saying, to lead us back into these responses of fear and anxiety and dread and terror once again, but as the spirit of liberty, the spirit of adoption as sons, to enable you to draw near to God as your father, to draw near to him, to enter into the holy of holies through the torn veil, torn by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Fear has turned into a filial confidence. Fear has turned into a love for God, a childlike love that cries out by the Holy Spirit's enabling, Abba, Father. That phrase is so precious. Abba in Aramaic means father. This term of intimacy and familiarity both of the terms are found on Jesus' lips in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out to his Father in light of the coming cross. And now we as the people of God are emboldened by the same Spirit who indwelt Jesus to approach God and to address God in the same way. Abba, Father, what a privilege. Here at Per Orchard Presbyterian Church, the children of our church and the children of our school, they know me as usually Pastor Caleb right? Maybe Mr. Caleb, Mr. Cangelosi, no way I can say that, right? But there are five children here who know me as dad, right? They know me as dad. This past week or a couple weeks ago, my mom came to see Caroline play volleyball and to see Lauren Bethann play soccer. And it was Thursday afternoon and we were walking to the gym and we walked by the, the playground and there were some preschool kids Outside, and I get to do preschool chapel every Thursday morning, play guitar and sing with them and do the, the Bible rap and the children's catechism, all these fun things. And so there were some kids out there and they came running, Pastor Caleb, Pastor Caleb. I was like, hey, y'all, this is my mommy. And one little boy said, Pastor Caleb, I didn't know you had a mommy. <laughs> there are five children who know I have a mommy and they call her Mimi. There's an intimacy there. There's a direct access to me as their dad, to their, their grandmother as, as Mimi. What a joyful privilege that we have to call God Father, to call God Abba, or to have this full access, this warmth, this, this confidence as we communicate with our Heavenly Father. We never lose that sense of reverence and, and awe and respect Right? Because he is our father in heaven. He's the transcendent one who is also imminent, who draws near to us, to whom we can draw near, to whom we can fervently cry out in all of our situations, in all of our needs, 
knowing that God is able and willing to help us in our time of need. Now, if you are a, an earthly father, an earthly mother, you know that there are times right, where sometimes you are unwilling to listen to the cries of your children. Right? Usually it's out of selfishness because you're doing something that you don't want to stop doing. But you also know that there are times when, when you are unable to hear and answer their cries. You don't have the time or the financial resources or the ability to do what it is that they want you to do. And yet we know that we can come to God as Father with all of our burdens, with all of our cares, with all of our concerns, with all of our needs and even our desires. And we know that he is good. He loves us. He wants what is best for us. And we know that he is all wise. He knows what is best for us. And we know that he is all powerful. He has the power to bring about that best in his time and in his ways. And it's the Holy Spirit who is at work within us to enable us to pray with this childlike confidence. By grace, we can Come to the Father, no longer afraid of him, but approaching him confidently, courageously, boldly, as a child to a father. Now again, if you don't pray, you're not a Christian, right? That's the definition of a Christian in a sense. Remember when, when Ananias was sent to Paul after Paul's conversion, and God in the vision says to Ananias, and behold, he prays. As if that's how you know he is mine. He prays. If you're a Christian, you pray. But how do you pray? How do you pray? Do you pray as a slave? Do you pray with a, a trembling in your spirit, a, a trembling in fear before God, afraid to ask him for anything because you don't think you deserve it? Or, or do you pray unwilling to pray? Right? There's an unwillingness because... Like the man in the parable, the talents, God's this harsh taskmaster, right? He's not going to give you anything you want anyway, so what's the use? What's the point? Or do you pray as a child, as a son, as a daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and therefore, as John Newton puts it, bringing large petitions with you because you know you're coming to a king. He can do anything, and he loves you, and he will do for you all that you need. Nothing is too difficult for him. And so with confidence, with joy, with trust in his power and his goodness, you bring to him your needs, your petitions, your supplications. Do you pray as a child? Do you cry out fervently, without hesitation? Do you run to him every time you need him? Throughout the day, as Tom prayed, without ceasing, Abba, Father, or do you try to handle things throughout the day in your own strength? Isn't it interesting, right? In life, we want our children to grow more and more independent only. We want them to, to get to the point where they don't need to ask us for help any longer. But it's not that way in the Christian life, is it? God wants us to grow more and more dependent on him. He wants us more and more to, to ask him for things, to rest in him, to express that dependence in childlike, confident praying. And this is the Spirit's job. This is what the Spirit is doing for us. He is enabling us to pray, Abba, Father. He is the Spirit 
of adoption as sons. That brings us to the final thing that Paul lays out for us here in this text that the Spirit does for us, his work. The Spirit assures us that we are heirs of God. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. The Spirit himself, Paul writes, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul here tells us that the Spirit is a witness for the defense, as it were. The Spirit is constantly testifying to believers in Jesus Christ that we are children of God. This is who we are. He he gives his supporting evidence. He bears witness of what is already true of us. And what is already true of us? That we are children of God. This verb, the, to bear witness with, it, it's one verb, one compound word in, in the Greek. And the sense most likely is that the spirit bears witness along with or in addition to our own spirits that bear witness of our sonship. Right? We ourselves know and testify to our being children of God. We do it as we read the scriptures and apply the, uh, the, the word of God to our own hearts and lives. We, we do it as we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? Our bold and, and childlike, confident praying to a loving heavenly Father testifies to our own adoption. Because it's only those who have been adopted by God who can pray in this manner from the heart. But the witness in verse 17 is a witness that accompanies our own witness. It's a witness that is given to us by the Spirit. It's his supernatural testimony to our own hearts that we are the children of God. Now certainly our our praying, again, is a component of his testimony, of his witness, because it's only by the Spirit that we can say, Abba, Father. And certainly the Spirit uses the, the truth of God's word to confirm the promises that God has spoken to us as his children. But the Spirit also comforts us and testifies to us directly. He gives us this hope, pouring out the love of God in our hearts. As Paul said in chapter 5, verse 5, concurrent with the word of God, the Spirit assures us and testifies to us that we are beloved of God the Father. And the Spirit especially does this when we are tempted when we are walking in darkness and have no light, tempted to doubt our sonship, tempted to doubt that that what the Bible says about us is true, is true. And again, what is true? We're children of God. And, And if children, Paul says, therefore we are heirs of God. We have a future hope of an inheritance that will never be taken away from us. If you have watched or read anything in the past weeks about the death of the Queen of England, then certainly you've heard of all that the royal family, especially King Charles and Prince William, have inherited. Right? And even Kate Middleton, what was like $10 million worth of the Queen's jewels, her own personal jewels. Amazing. And then they've looked forward to this inheritance. Obviously, they've not looked forward to their grandmother dying. But they've known that this inheritance would be theirs in possession one day. It was not yet until she died. 
They had a hope. They were heirs of the queen. And this idea of inheriting, it, it, it helps us to understand something that perhaps has been bothering you this whole sermon. When you read and, and you hear Paul say, the adoption of sons, you're like, well, what about daughters? Like, what about women? Is Paul just talking to men here? No, Paul's not saying that only males are adopted. Rather, Paul is, is using a technical and a legal term from Roman culture. In Roman culture, a father would, would adopt a, a male heir, not as a baby, but typically as an adult, if he had no son or had no son who could, could stand as his heir and run his estate, he would adopt a male, a son, right, to be his heir, to inherit his land, to inherit his property, to, to run his estate. And Paul here is saying that every believer in Jesus, male or female, has been adopted as a son, right? has the adoption as sons. All of us have the same privileges, the same inheritance that comes along with being adopted as a son in the Roman culture. Right? Every believer is an heir, an heir of God and a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. In, in previous cultures, even in England, it was the, the firstborn son right, that adopted everything. Primogenitor, right? Second son, sorry. In fact, in Tennessee, even today, there's a little community called Rugby. Right, it's sort of out in the, the woods, way up. It's actually sort of near where Alvin York is from. Some of you know that name. And, and Rugby, Tennessee, was founded as a community in the late 1800s for second sons of England. Right? Second sons of England who had nothing. Right? We didn't get an inheritance because we weren't the elder brother. It's like, well, come and start a new life in, in the woods of Tennessee. Right? <laughs> oh, thanks. But you see, they needed that because they didn't get the inheritance. But Paul is saying here that every Christian, every believer, male or female, has been born again by the Spirit of God to obtain with Jesus Christ as a co-heir an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We have this hope of, of inheritance in union with Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter one? God has predestined us to adoption as sons. There's that term again. Through Jesus Christ, we inherit every spiritual blessing in and through our savior, Jesus Christ. We are sons in the son. All that is his by right is his, ours by grace. And it will be ours in fullness on the last day. And ultimately, what do we inherit but God himself? He is our portion. He is our inheritance. We are heirs of God and his indwelling spirit is the present guarantee of all the future glory that will be ours. Paul later in this chapter is going to call the spirit the first fruits. Right? He's the, the, the first harvest that, that guarantees the full harvest that is yet to come. This is what the Spirit does. He assures us by witnessing to us, testifying to us that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, your status is heir of God. This is who you are. And the indwelling Spirit of God is not a spirit of slavery to lead you to fear again, but it's a spirit of 
of adoption as sons. And that should change everything for you day after day after day. Why do I say that? Because here's the thing. You no longer have to live as a slave. If you are a son of God and an heir of God, you can and you should live as an heir of God. How do slaves live? Slaves are afraid of God. Slaves fear men. Heirs fear God and are afraid of no one. Slaves obey to gain acceptance. They're always struggling and striving to to get something they don't have. They're they're serving because they have to. Heirs obey because they know they already have acceptance. They, 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 They obey, they serve because they get to. It's their duty and their delight. Slaves are suspicious, competitive with other people, always looking out for number one, always clinging tenaciously to rights because if you give up your rights, if you give up right, what belongs to you, you're going to lose it to the competition. Only one quarterback can be on the field at one time, right? Heirs gladly deny themselves, give up their rights because they know they're an heir. They know they have everything that they could ever imagine through their relationship with their heavenly father. They're secure in this knowledge that God will give them all that they need. Slaves grow bitter when suffering is their lot. Slaves are angry at God when they suffer. Whereas heirs know that suffering is the only path to glory. What does Paul say here in the last verse, verse 17? Fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering was the path that Jesus trod, and it must be our path as well if we want glory. The cross comes before the crown, and there is no crown without the cross, without suffering. Even as Jesus in the garden prayed, Abba, Father, in the midst of this extreme suffering, as a prayer of submission to the suffering he was about to undergo, so we pray it in our suffering. We pray for the grace of God to help us in our time of need. We know that God has ordained suffering for our good. We know that through many tribulations, as Paul says in Acts 14, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. But we also know, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, it is through these tribulations, through these afflictions, which he calls light and momentary, It's through these afflictions that the glory that we are waiting for is produced. It is producing for us, Paul says, an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds them all. Heirs know that that trials are not a sign that we're not sons. There's another double negative. Trials are not signs that we're not sons. Rather, trials are signs that we are sons. True sons will be disciplined by the Lord. True sons will suffer as their elder brother suffered because it is only through suffering that we receive glory. Do you live as as an heir or do you live as a slave? The spirit of adoption as sons is dwelling within you, enabling you, assuring you that you are a son, you are a daughter. He's leading you into holiness. He's enabling you to pray as 
to God as father, like a child, like a confident child. And he is witnessing to you, assuring you that you are an heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what privilege we have as sons and daughters of the king. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that even in our suffering, we learn our sonship. Lord, we thank you for the spirit of God who richly dwells within us, who does all these things for us. Oh Lord, spirit, we ask that you would help us to know and understand and believe and rest in your work. Oh God, our Father, help us to cry out to you this week more naturally, more quickly. Lord, help us, we pray, to rest in this reality that we are heirs, and therefore we need not fear. Lord, would you give us the grace of the Spirit to walk in the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to walk as children of God. We pray in Jesus' name, our elder brother. Amen.